become a perpetual traveler through the Bible. Please join me for the next part of my journey through the Scriptures. Stay as long as you like, and let us together discover a bit more about the Bible. About 20 years after King James I of England received the first Bibles he commissioned to be translated into English, his successor Charles I commissioned 1,000 more copies to be printed. Apparently, King Charles was not pleased with the result. As a matter of fact, he was so displeased that he docked a whole year's wages from the publisher and revoked his printing license. What did the publisher do to deserve that punishment? He left out one small three-letter word. In our Bibles, Exodus 20 verses 14 is five words long. It says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. King Charles's publisher left out the word not. So, in the 1631 edition of the King James Bible, the seventh commandment said that, Thou shalt commit adultery. Today, if that printer had made the same mistake, the reaction would be different. Instead of the publisher being forced out of business, their sales would be off the charts. Of course, people have never needed a Bible misprint that commanded adultery to allow them to commit adultery. This is why the church today is often accused of being hypocritical. We cannot reach the world for Christ because they see no difference in us, because there is no difference in the way we live and act, just like there was no difference in the church at Thyatira. Thyatira was located about 56 kilometers southeast of Pergamum. It was a small but busy commercial town on a major road of the Roman Empire. Many trade unions, or guilds as they were known, had settled in the city. In fact, Thyatira was specially known for these trade guilds more than any other ancient city in Asia. Originally, Thyatira was founded by Alexander the Great as a military garrison. His soldiers worshipped the god Apollo, who was their patron god. One of the names that Apollo was given was the Son of God. By the time that the book of Revelation was written in the first century, Thyatira had become a very prosperous town. It was not like Pergamon or Ephesus that were large world-class cities, but it was Thyatira's major commodities that made this town so prosperous. It was known throughout the ancient world for its fine textiles and was the center of the indigo trade, which was a deep purple dye created from the madder plant root and used to create the much sought-after purple cloth that Thyatira was famous for. The town of Thyatira is mentioned in the book of Acts, Chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. Now Thyatira was a city where guilds were very important. You might think that trade unions originated in the factories and coal mines of 19th century England and America, but the truth is that carpenters, masons, merchants, cloth makers, and other trade workers had organized into guilds even before the time of Christ. In Thyatira, the trades were so strongly unionized that it was difficult to make a living without being a guild member. And this is an important fact to remember when studying the letter to the fourth church found in Revelation 2 verses 18 to 29. With all the letters that Jesus writes to the seven churches in Revelation, he always begins with words of affirmation. In verse 18 he says, 
and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus then says in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So this was a church that was doing well for itself, despite the pressures that early Christians faced in this town. We must keep in mind that the entire social, industrial, religious structure of Thyatira was built around the guilds. Every single craft had its own guild. The textile merchants had a guild. The bronze smiths, the silversmiths, all belonged to their own guild. Guilds were the heart of their social function, their religious function, as well as their work. Periodically, the guilds would hold great festivals for all the members. The problem for Christians was that these were held in the temple of Apollo, who was the patron god of the guilds, as well as the military garrison of Thyatira. And remember, Apollo was also called the son of God. At these guild festivities, everyone would worship Apollo. They would eat and celebrate and often involve themselves in sexual immorality. This was a problem that Christians in Thyatira faced. If they didn't partake in the festivities, then they would be accused of bringing misfortune on the guild because the god Apollo would be displeased. If this happened, then the guild would have only one option, and that would be to expel the Christians, and they would lose their jobs and livelihood. We learned in episode 23 of the Journey Through the Scriptures podcast that in the Church of Pergamum, Christians faced the tremendous pressure of not worshipping in the temples and not worshipping the emperor, and for that they risked losing their lives. In Thyatira, they might not lose their lives, but they would lose their jobs and their source of income. Every follower of Christ in Thyatira had to make a choice. It would be Jesus or his career. But Jesus addresses these marginalized believers in Thyatira by identifying himself as the real Son of God. Although Apollo, the patron god of the guilds, was also called the Son of God, Jesus declares that, I am the Son of God. It is significant that the title, the Son of God, appears in these verses for the first and only time in the entire book of Revelation. Some cults, sects, and atheists claim that Jesus never said he was the Son of God. Yet here is one of the several New Testament passages where he clearly makes that claim. Later on in that verse, in reference to the bronze smiths of Thyatira, he says, My feet are like burnished bronze. And in reference to the refining furnaces of the metalworking industry, he says, My eyes are like flames of fire. This is a marvelous, powerful picture of Jesus, who is so far above all the things that had plagued these believers' lives. Let me ask you this question, and I ask it of myself. How much is Jesus worth to you? What kind of value do you place on him? Would you value your job, your career, your bank balance more than him? These are the choices facing us, and this was the choice that faced the Christians of Thyatira. Outwardly, the church at Thyatira was healthy. The Lord found several good things in this church. He says in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. The four qualities mentioned here, love, faith, service and patient endurance, are all interlinked. Love will always lead to service. If we love God, we will naturally serve His people. It is part of our new nature, and service is the outward expression of a heart that is full of love. 
Faith leads to patient endurance or perseverance. If we have faith, we will persevere. We understand that God is in control of all the circumstances of life and things will always work out for His good purpose. When we have faith, we keep at our work. We will persevere. In the church at Thyatira, there were many believers who loved God, who served His people, who had faith in His word and had patient endurance. As they loved God and served others, Jesus observed that the church had grown in these qualities since its early days and says, Your latter works exceed the first. People are always attracted by the reality of Christian love, heartfelt Christian service, the hope of Christian faith, and the challenging example of Christian perseverance. People who are outside the church and see such qualities being lived out in the name of Jesus earnestly desire what they see inside. True Christians are different. They are not like the rest of the world. If I saw the church of Thyatira today and experienced the fellowship of the believers there, I would certainly be impressed by everything that I saw. The busyness, the activity, the warmth and caring of many wonderful people. It would be a very attractive church on the outside. But there was something dreadfully wrong deep within the church of Thyatira. In Revelation 2 verses 20 to 23, we will begin to learn deeper problems about the church. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. The church at Thyatira had a woman who was a very dominant leader. Jesus names her Jezebel. Most likely this was not her name but our Lord always names people according to their character. We do it as well. If we called someone a Judas or a Hitler, it has a very strong meaning. That is why Jesus often renames people in the Gospels. Cephas was also called Simon Peter. Didymus was also called Thomas, and so on. Here Jesus chooses the name of the most evil woman in the Old Testament. Her story can be found in 1 Kings chapter 16 to 21, and 2 Kings chapter 9. Jezebel in the Old Testament was the daughter of the king of Sidon in Lebanon. She was the wife of King Ahab of Israel, the northern kingdom, and she is infamous for making the worship of the god Baal popular in Israel. Baal was a fertility god, and his worship involved sexually immoral and wild behavior. It was Jezebel who spread this idol worship widely among the ten northern tribes of Israel until it became one of the most popular religions of the day. She was the one who tried to kill Elijah after his famous encounter with 480 of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel when fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. Elijah had courageously faced the false prophets of Baal, but when Jezebel threatened him, he ran for his life, so she must have been a powerful and dangerous woman. She was a ruthless, immoral seducer of the people, and that is why Jesus selects her name for this dominant woman at Thyatira. And this Jezebel in Thyatira calls herself a prophetess. Now, there is nothing wrong with her being a woman. 
It was not her gender that was wrong, it was her teaching. There were other women prophets in the Bible. In fact, in the book of Acts, we are told that Philip the evangelist had four daughters who were prophetesses and who had prophesied within the church. But Jezebel was a false prophet, and Jesus points out what her false teaching was. She taught that it was all right for Christians to indulge in sexual immorality and idolatry. Now here is the link with the guilds of Thyatira. In order to make a living, the Christians of Thyatira had to belong to a guild, but to attend the guild was to become involved, or to be pressured to become involved with the worship of idols and with unrestrained and immoral sexual behavior. So they had to make a choice. It was difficult to live in Thyatira for this very reason. This Jezebel had begun to teach that it was all right for Christians to go along with the requirements of the guild, and that they needed to give in to the pressures of the world in order to make a living, and that God would understand and overlook this. Her philosophy was what you often hear today when people say, business is business. If business practices collide with your Christian principles, then your principles have to go because you have to make a living. I am sure that you have heard that argument. In many churches today, there is the same acceptance of loose sexuality and lack of standards that is mirrored in our society. For instance, some churches approve of homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle, and many churches will not discipline their members when they fall into sexual immorality. At this point, I would like to digress for a moment to address a popular teaching within the fringe of the church known as Deliverance Ministry, started by the like of Derek Prince and Bob Mumford. It is an obsession with demonic spirits who are blamed for virtually everything wrong in society and within the culture and are believed to be the instigators of all Christian misbehavior. The primary demonic creature taking all the blame is called Jezebel, the mother queen of heaven. However, Jezebel is mentioned only once in the New Testament and it refers to the behavior of a person calling themselves a prophetess, not a demonic creature. In deliverance ministry, those who cause division within a church or are labeled as arrogant when questioning the pastor or church leadership because they don't agree or challenge something that has been said or done or are seen as a seducing threat by insecure wives are often accused of having a so-called Jezebel spirit and therefore need deliverance. The Bible, however, makes no mention of a spirit of Jezebel and clearly shows that the actual Jezebel in the Old Testament and the Jezebel of the New Testament are actually operating in the works of the flesh and the old sinful nature, using manipulation, false prophecy, heretical teaching, political maneuvering, seduction and usurping authority rather than the fruit of the Spirit, which is mentioned in Galatians 5 verses 19 to 21. Now, having got that issue out of the way, let us return to verse 20, where you might notice that the Lord holds the church responsible for this false prophetess, Jezebel. Jesus' accusation to them is, You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. This is a problem that church leadership has to face in our day just as it had to face it in the first century. What do we tolerate as a church in order to avoid alienation and becoming unpopular to our society? In both the letters to the church at Pergamum and Thyatira, the Lord links sexual immorality with idolatry. The reason is this, fornication and adultery are both violations of clear statements in the word of God, and anyone who reads the Bible can see that God forbids these activities. 
It is wrong for believers to indulge in sexual immorality of any sort, and when they do, they have deliberately violated the authority of God. And therefore God is no longer their God, and that, simply stated, is idolatry. If we deliberately reject the Lord's authority, He is no longer our God. And we must find another God, for it is impossible for the human spirit to live without something to live for. That is what a God is. Whatever you are living for, whatever makes life worthwhile to you becomes your God. It might be the God of pleasure, the God of wealth, or the God of power and status. Wherever you work is the place of the greatest temptation in this regard. In our local churches, there are businessmen and businesswomen, professional people, secretaries, various laborers in the marketplace, shop assistants, and so on. It is not in the Sunday meetings where temptations occur. It is right where you work that you will be under pressure to compromise and to go along with the standards of the world around you. And that is what was going on in Thyatira. The punishment that our Lord brings against the teachings of Jezebel reflects the sickness that idolatry and immorality always brings. Revelation 2 verses 21 to 23 says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. In Jesus' judgment there are three groups affected. Firstly, to Jezebel herself, Jesus says, I will throw her onto a sickbed. There is a bit of irony or sarcasm here. He is saying, in effect, if this woman likes beds, I will give her one, but a bed of pain and sickness. The second group that is affected, he says he will throw those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Those who commit adultery with her are those who practice, as she did, immorality and the resulting idolatry. The suffering or affliction that he refers to could refer to the sexually transmitted diseases which invariably accompany immorality. Gonorrhea and syphilis were well known and widespread in the ancient world. These days we have the additional plague of AIDS that results largely from sexual immorality. Anyone who has watched someone dying of AIDS knows what a terrible painful thing it is, both emotionally and physically. There was a third group. Jesus says, I will strike her children dead. The children spoken of here do not necessarily mean this woman's physical children, but represent those who not only practice immorality, but who spread it to others as well, as Jezebel was doing. Personally, I think the death referred to here is spiritual death, or what is called in a letter to the church of Pergamum, the second death which is the terrible death in the lake of fire that is described in Revelation chapters 20 and 21. Spiritual death occurs when there is a commitment to evil that makes repentance difficult, when a person becomes hardened and desensitized to right and wrong. But despite these terrible judgment that Jesus pronounces, there is good news. He says, unless they repent of her works. Jesus always gives an opportunity for repentance. Often natural disasters, Earthquakes, hurricanes, volcanoes, floods, and global pandemics are opportunities being given to us to think again, to stop and look at what we are doing, and to change our ways. 
Jesus says that this Jezebel was unwilling, so the judgment must come on her. The impact of that judgment and discipline within the church is always that the church is purified, strengthened and helped. Verse 23 says so, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Believers begin to notice evil tendencies and become careful not to drift into the pattern of the world around them. They begin to make a stand against pressure to conform and compromise. That is what needed to happen in Thyatira, as Jesus searches the hearts and the minds. Jesus is saying that when we see him acting in judgment, we will realize that our feelings are important, and our choices equally so and that each one will be held responsible for his or her choices. No one else can be blamed but ourselves. When we look at the church of Thyatira prophetically within the scope of church history, we see that this church foreshadows the time from the 6th to the 16th century, a thousand years which are called the Dark Ages. It was the time when the church became corrupted by combining pagan rites and Christian teaching. Many pagan practices and heathen rituals were introduced into the churches, disguised with Christian terminology, and were thus accepted as being true. Images began to be worshipped in churches. Only priests were allowed to read the Bible, pray, bless and teach, which was unknown in the early church. The control of political powers by religious authorities became widespread. This was the time when the Bishop of Rome began to be called the Pope and began to exercise authority over emperors and kings. This was the time when church hierarchy was widely established in the church as the system of government instead of the simple servant leadership that we read of in the New Testament. We should not make the mistake of most Protestant Christians and think that this only portrays the Roman Catholic Church. Many great Protestant denominations also allowed many of these errors that are reflected here in Thyatira to take over. We hear the titles like Duomini, Reverend and Doctor being used to address the ministers in many Protestant churches, and there are many political parties with the name Christian in them. We see the passing of responsibility for evangelism over to professional ministers instead of the members of the local church. This should tell us that we are all as guilty as the Roman Catholic Church of the corrupting influence of the Church of Thyatira. In his appeal to the church, our Lord says several encouraging things. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Here, for the first time in these letters, our Lord lays special stress on his coming. Notice particularly the phrase, the deep things of Satan. When the church drifts away from the moral standards of God's word, it almost invariably leads to the rise of mystic rites and rituals. People love to feel that they are being let into special secret things. You find these mystic cults arising in many movements of our day. The New Age movement and its offspring, the New Apostolic Movement for instance, entices people with revelations of powerful spiritual experiences and knowledge that ordinary people do not have. These are what Jesus calls the deep things of Satan. In 1 Corinthians 2.10, Paul speaks of the deep things of God. Whenever God does something good, Satan imitates it and corrupts it. These dark and hidden things are Satan's imitation of the wonderfully deep truths in the word of God. Now to those who have not been misled by Jezebel's false teachings, 
Jesus says, hold fast what you have. He says, do not let it go. Do not accept these degraded moral standards. It might be difficult to live for Christ in a worldly church, but hang on to your moral standards at least. Do not go along with sexual immorality and do not accept the idea that adultery is only a minor sin. Hold on, Jesus says, until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Jesus has a promise to those who overcome by holding fast until he comes in verses 26 and 27. This quotation comes directly from Psalm 2 and is a reference to the rule of Christ in the earthly kingdom that we call the millennium. This is the earthly kingdom where saints will share a reign with Christ and when Satan is bound for a thousand years. The millennium is a time when righteousness reigns or rules over the earth and there will still be judgment among people because sin and death will still be present. However, the new heavens and the new earth, which comes after this, reflect a condition where righteousness dwells. Nothing shall enter there except that which is righteous and pure and good. For the faithful in Thyatira there is a wonderful promise in verse 28. Jesus says, I will give him the morning star. Have you ever seen the morning star? It is the planet Venus. You will have to get up while it is still dark to see it. In the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, there is a great prediction by the prophet in Malachi 4 verses 2 that the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. That prophecy means that the Lord Jesus will return in power and great glory. He will be like the sun appearing in the darkness of this world's night. But before the sun rises, the morning star appears. In Revelation 22 verses 16, Jesus says of himself, I am the bright morning star. What is Jesus saying here? There will be an appearing of himself for his church before he comes in power and glory, visible to the whole world. In other words, this is a promise of the rapture or the snatching away of the church. This is the first such promise in the book of Revelation. Jesus will appear for his own, for those belonging to him who are true Christians, who have been held and kept by the Spirit of God from the evils of the world. It is not that we cannot and do not at times fall, but we always recover and repent and turn back to Him. That is the sign that our faith is real. Those who have real faith will always repent. True faith holds on to the end. Finally, Jesus says in verse 29, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We must not just listen to this church's message, but to all the church's messages. These promises and warnings are needed in our individual lives, no matter what our local church may be like. The church at Ephesus was told, Do not let your love for Jesus grow cold. Smyrna was told, Do not fear the persecution of the world. Pergamon was told to trust the word of God to keep you strong and faithful. And Thyatira was told, Avoid both sexual and spiritual adultery. Keep your moral standards clear. These are tremendously practical letters for today's age. We need to heed them today as much as they did in the first century. This is David Wiles, your fellow traveler in Christ, and this has been the Journey Through the Scriptures podcast, episode 24.